How do we learn to talk or to walk? Why do we fall in love? What is a memory made of? The very first moment is what I call the magic moment. So the brain is a device that allows to capture the external world. Even drinking our tea or coffee, sitting here, you know, just lifting your cup is involving millions of these neurons to be able to do this. And what about the word sweet? Yes, I think it was. There's your false memory. No, oh no. Our answers are much more vague and nebulous than, than you would anticipate. I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. I've spent years studying the science of human behaviour, unpicking the complexities of love and relationships and how we become who we are. And now I want to go back to where it all begins, in our brains. In this new series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains from before birth to after death. From prosthetics that can really feel. They put this uh, baseball in my hand and could just tell that I had some round in my hand. It was totally crazy. To why a familiar scent can pull us back to years ago. What we do know is that all of those smells are processed in the limbic system, which houses the amygdala and the hippocampus, which is emotion and memory. To the magic of rediscovering sound. And it was like a whole new richness and depth of sound. So that was amazing, because it was like the world just got brighter and more like technicolor. And of course, the neuroscience of love. I'll be uncovering the fascinating stories behind how our brains grow, change and ultimately die. This is how we're wired. So let's start at the beginning when the brain is first being formed and the stage is being set. So I'm Kristen. I'm 32 years old. I'm pregnant with my first baby. I'm excited because I haven't seen the baby since he was 20 weeks old and now he's 32 weeks old, which is a really big difference in baby world. Okay, so I think it's just here. I have the worst sense of direction. (laughs) One spring day, our producer Eva, who happens to have a PhD in neuroscience herself, headed down to London with Kristen to attend an ultrasound. Something that seems so ordinary nowadays, but is extraordinary if you think about how it allows us a window into the developing brain. I met the baby's father in San Francisco when I was studying at university. I was studying fine art and my roommate called me over Christmas because someone had moved in downstairs and she said, oh, Kristen, there's someone's moved in that you're going to absolutely love. (laughs) And when I came back a week later, it was Oscar that had moved in downstairs in the dorms. And turns out I really did like him a lot. So we started dating for a while and he was from England and I was from America. So we were going back and forth for seven years, basically. He came over so much that they started sort of detaining him at the border and questioning him. That was the sort of final straw that we were like, okay, we got to sort something out. When I found out I was pregnant, I was really, really excited and also completely terrified, basically. I've had a few other pregnancies that haven't gone gone well in the past, so I've sort of had that in the back of my head the whole time. So super excited, but also really nervous, I guess, for what was going to happen, and it changes on a day-to-day basis. So lots of emotions, I guess. (laughs) So my name's Idel, I'm the sonographer here. So first things first, 
baby is head down, okay, and then heart beating there in the middle. Let's have a listen. It's baby's heartbeat. Looks good. So sorry for pushing. And then what we do is a measurement of the blood flow in baby's brain. So we'll do that measurement. Good. That's normal. Yeah, because it's meant to be going in fast, supplying the brain. Can you see the different sort of structures of his brain at this stage? I'll point them out slightly to you. Okay. Um, this is the baby's brain. It's like you're looking down through. So this is the cavum septum. This is the choroid plexus inside. Then we've got the thalamus. Kind of want it to look like a butterfly shape, so it's all mm -hmm. symmetrical, which it does. Then the back of the brain, we've got the cerebellum. So that's really good. It looks like a normal brain. But very well-behaved baby, I will say. Okay, that's good. That okay. might be an indicator. Hopefully it stays. <laughs> or maybe yeah. it's being well-behaved now and naughty when it comes out. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks very much. Thank you. So really excited to got to see the baby again he's so much bigger it's just sort of like a big blob but we did <laughs> we did get to see his brain and that was really cool to sort of see the way it was shaped it's such an incredible thing but I mean I think the main thing that I took away was that he's healthy that's a big perk for me <laughs> my due date is in nine weeks from today so we'll see I'm really excited to meet him finally when it's your first baby, going to the scan is a really funny feeling of being incredibly excited, but also a little bit scared. Scared that you're going to be a good parent and scared that what you see on the screen is going to be OK. But it is also the opportunity to meet for the very first time this little person who is going to change your life forever. You will never forget it. Now... Adele, who ran the ultrasound, could point out a lot of different brain regions during the scan. And that's because, by 32 weeks, the basic structure of a human brain is well formed. But what's it actually formed of? Eva's here to explain. The average adult brain weighs about three pounds, or 1.3 kilos, and about 60% of that is fat. The rest is water, proteins, carbs and salts. And between them, these ingredients make up the approximately 170 billion cells present in an adult brain. There are the nerve cells, or neurons, the long spiky structures you might remember from textbooks. These form connections called synapses and carry information. And then there are the glia. These are support cells that keep the neurons healthy and functioning. There are also blood vessels that supply nutrients and oxygen to the brain, which, as you might have heard, must cross the highly selective blood-brain barrier. Glucose is one of those nutrients and is the main source of energy for your brain, which is hungry for energy. About 20% of your daily energy requirements are consumed by your brain, which is about 500 calories a day. And your brain uses that energy as fuel because the brain and the rest of our nervous system runs on electricity. Like wires on a circuit board, stimulating one cell can start an avalanche of activity across different areas of the brain, as information is passed from cell to cell to cell. And just like we insulate wires with plastic coverings, our neurons are insulated too with a fatty substance called myelin. 
that's why so much of your brain is made of fat. Specific combinations of neurons are linked together to control specific actions, forming circuits. And the most vital circuits for things like breathing, suckling and swallowing are set up before birth. But once a baby is born, the brain starts forming new connections, those synapses, at a rate of one million per second. And actually, a big part of later brain development is pruning away the ones that aren't useful or important. And, of course, your brain is just one part of your nervous system. You've also got your spinal cord and all the nerves extending out from the tips of your fingers to the ends of your toes. And your organs, too. All wired together to make you, you. So, that's how the nervous system works in essence. But let's go back a step. All that complexity has to start somewhere, so... Where? How does the brain grow in the womb? And actually, is there a scientific definition of what a brain is in the first place? I knew just the person to ask. My name is Lisa Goodrich. I'm a professor at Harvard Medical School in the Department of Neurobiology. So a brain is a centralized command center that takes in information from the periphery information about what you see, what you hear, what you feel, uses that information to make a computation about what it means, and then makes a decision about what you should do with it. You can divide the brain very generally into the cortex, which you would recognize, and you just see, and you're like, that's a brain, it's all convoluted and all that. And then there's everything underneath it, okay? And all those things that are underneath it, they are each kind of specialized centers either for taking in information and sending it up to the cortex or for kind of assigning some values to what that means. So for example, there will be regions that process fear and emotions and other parts that are really just for keeping you alive, right? So like the brainstem, that's where everything is housed for just, I'm going to breathe, I'm going to jump when I hear a loud sound and I need to get out of the way. A lot of reflexes that are in there. So talking about that development of the human brain, how does the brain develop in the womb? It's pretty interesting because the cells that will, that will make your brain are among the first to be set aside in development, the first to be determined. It happens extremely early. This is amazing, right? You've got a ball of cells that's going to be a human and it undergoes this dramatic change in its three-dimensional organization. And during those stages, which happen like days after conception, the interactions between those cells will set aside a subset and say, you are going to be the neurons of this human. So it happens very early. And it starts as just a sheet of cells, and then it folds up to become a tube. Then that tube will develop swellings at the front. So one of those swellings will become the brainstem. One of those swellings will become the middle of the brain. And one of those swellings will become the cortex. And then you just have an extended period of generating neurons, making sure that you have all the different types. And then there's just growth. Okay, so when you're getting to the second trimester, huge amounts of growth. You've got the basic parts. We're just going to add more neurons. And then 
start forming those connections. So how do we how do we grow neurons? How do we make sure that this brain is going to get bigger and bigger? Neurons start as cells that want to be neurons, but have not committed to what kind of neuron. I always think of it as like the elementary school, right? Like, like I'm going to be a firefighter, right? And there's a lot of steps you have to go through. In any case, these early progenitors, their job is to just divide and make more. And so early on, they just divide. So every cell just splits in two, splits in two, splits in two. Then as development progresses in ways that we really don't fully understand, that division will no longer be symmetric, but one of them will say, I'm ready to differentiate. I'm graduating. And then they will, based on a complex interplay of what genes they express and where they are in the brain, they will then mature into becoming the kind of neuron you need. So we've got our, our baby in the womb, and is it developing things like the sense of hearing, the sense of touch within the womb? For sure, there are sensations experienced in the womb. And the question is like, when does that turn into an awareness? I don't know, right? We know if we just look, the cells you would need to detect a sound or the cells that you would need to see something or the cells you would need to touch, they're all there. And in fact, using those systems is an important part of development because it helps you make sure that the system is working. Anybody who's been pregnant, which would include myself, has felt the baby moving and responding. You know, I think of it as like practicing, like trying out your nervous system and making sure everything everything's good to go. What are the issues that can affect that brain development? Are there genetic issues, environmental issues? Unfortunately, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. And there's both genetic and environmental causes. So the thing that you'd hear about regularly would be the need for folate when you're pregnant. Well, we don't know exactly the science of it, but what we do know is that if there's not enough folate, that early, early stage when you're making the nervous system, when it's going from being a sheet to a tube, that doesn't proceed normally. This results in what we call neural tube defects, and they can be either very minor so that maybe it won't have a lot of consequence. So you could have kind of spina bifida that is maybe even unknown to the person who has it, or it can be really horrible and result in no brain at all. So that's one very common type of thing that can go wrong. Then you can also have malformations in the shape of the cortex, where most of the brain is okay, but now the cortex, say, doesn't fold enough or there's not enough cells. It's too small. Then the other kind of set of things that can go wrong, and we're just moving through development here, is not making the right kinds of connections. So there are some disorders where neurons up in, in your cortex that control muscle movement, they don't cross the midline the way they should, Okay, and they stay on the wrong side. And so th these people, when they move one hand, the other one will move with it because they haven't properly segregated information on the left and right. So those kinds of connections, that's another thing that can go wrong. And what happens if a baby is born, for example, preterm? Is it that the brain can carry on developing the way it needs to outside the womb? Or is that going to affect that developmental trajectory? So... This is a really important question. What we do know is that there's a strong correlation with preterm birth and the development of what we consider to be very human cognitive functions. And so it often has more of an effect on things like executive function and stuff. When you're pregnant, you hear a lot about what is good or bad for your baby's developing brain. Drinking alcohol, for example, can damage the growing nerve cells leading to changes in brain structure, whereas eating omega-3 fatty acids from things like oily fish or seaweed is massively beneficial to the growth of new cells. 
That's especially true during the third trimester when the brain actually triples in size and many new connections are being made. Despite the sometimes overwhelming number of recommendations thrown at you, some of them less scientific than others, sorry everyone playing Mozart to your bump probably isn't going to make your baby smarter, for most people having a baby is a really exciting time. But it can also be tinged with anxiety, especially if you have a medical complication that means you might go into labour early, which can have big consequences on brain development as Lisa mentioned. I had just that experience with the birth of my second daughter and I spent a lot of time stuck in a hospital bed before she arrived prematurely. So, when I found that one doctor has made it his mission to find new ways of assessing whether a baby is likely to be born premature and that he's come up with something which might just be a game changer, I was really keen to find out more. It's always... We always rebuild somewhere. (laughs) Uh The the building is... 100 years old. That's Professor David Bowe, head of the obstetric service at the University Hospital in Lausanne and a professor of obstetrics. On a sunny spring day, we went to meet him in Lausanne, Switzerland at the hospital, also called Tuve, which is part of an impressively sprawling campus on top of a hill. Since I'm a student, they are all, always rebuilding. Everything's changing somewhere. And once we were settled and appropriately hydrated... A café latte. One cup of tea, one coffee, that's coffee, right? Yes. Okay, perfect. Uh, we are on track. Merci beaucoup. I asked David what he was working on. We are developing a sanitary pad that allows to monitor from home and not in hospital the patient for her risk to give preterm birth. So the preterm birth is a birth that occurs before 37 weeks of gestation. So at about 7 to eight months of gestation, if a birth occurs, this is a preterm birth. And do we know the percentage of women who would experience that? How many roughly? In Europe, it's about 10%. In US, it's more. We don't really know why. Two-thirds of them will have spontaneous preterm birth, and one-third of them will have induced preterm birth by the doctors because the baby is doing not well or the mother is doing not well. And do we know who's at risk? That's the problem, especially for a first pregnancy. We do not know who is at risk. Of course, if you had a preterm birth in your previous pregnancy, you are more at risk. But in the first pregnancy, it's always difficult to tell which patient will be at risk. So if we look at the brain itself, if a baby's experienced the preterm birth, what sort of problems can that cause? The major problem with preterm birth is that the vessel of the baby... All the vessels of the baby are not ready to work as if they were outside the womb, which means you are more at risk to bleed from your vessel. And the most sensible vessels are in the brain. So, of course, if you are born premature, you are more at risk to bleed in your brain. If you experience brain damage, of course, you can imagine this will not be repaired in comparison to, for example, intestine or lung damage that might recover or partly recover. And are there interventions you can do to try and prevent that happening? Or is there anything, any treatment you can give the baby? First things we, we need to do is to try to keep the pregnancy as long as possible to allow this vessel to mature, to allow the brain to mature, but also to allow the vessel or the other organs to mature, such as the lungs. The second thing we can do is to give steroids. Steroids have the 
capacity to stress the body of the baby and to allow an accelerated maturation of the different organs, mainly the lungs, but also the brain and the intestine. So how big of an issue is it to try and monitor preterm births? It's one of the most difficult parts of our work. I would say that almost all patients will complain at some points of pain in the tummy. So is it the first sign of preterm birth or not? So we have to examine them. You have to bring them in the hospital. You have to make invasive procedure to see the cervix, to measure the cervix, to see if there is any sign of infection. And I would say almost 90% of the population will experience at some point such pain. Who between all these patients is at risk to deliver preterm? This is the most difficult part. You will hospitalize a lot of patients who will at the end not deliver preterm. To the opposite, you are at risk to not hospitalize a patient who might deliver preterm. Mm. The research has bring a new test, I would say a biomarker, in the last few years. The protein, at the moment, if you want to measure, we need to do a vaginal examination. The device we try to create is something that is able to measure the same protein inside sanitary pad. This sanitary pad is able to measure this protein. When it's absent, the chance you will not deliver in the next two weeks is 99.9%. Wow, that's amazing. So the advantage is it's not invasive. It's not invasive. You and, don't need a doctor. And you can live your life normally. Exactly. And mainly you can be at home instead to be hospitalised if you had a preterm birth in the past. As somebody who has experienced being stuck in hospital, worrying about the health of my baby and their brain, the idea that something so simple could free thousands of women and protect their babies made me really want to see for myself. So, we headed down to the Ecole Polytechnic Federal de Lausanne, or EPFL for short, to meet Eric Garcia. And Lulia Kassem. Two members of the team that are bringing this concept to life. Although this time we could skip the hot drinks. Can we offer you a coffee? Have you guys had um, a coffee already? Quite caffeinated. And get straight to the point. Oh, wow. So, it does actually look exactly like... Can I touch it? Is that okay? Exactly like a sanitary towel, doesn't it? So, in there there is some sort of... Something that's going to pick up the chemicals. So, how does a patient use this practically? It's to be used just like any sanitary pad... And the patient should use it once per week for an average of two hours. Okay. So, oh, right. So it's not all the time. It's just a, a very limited usage. Yes. So as long as we have one test result, this is okay for the week. And so once it detects that, what happens next? It sends an alert to the doctor uh, indicating that there is a probability of a preterm birth. So I've got something in my hand that looks a little bit like part of a computer sort of motherboard but it's really tiny really flexible it's not very complicated from the electronic perspective like when you go out of a clothing shop mm. there are these antennas that get alerted before you exit right and these antennas have no batteries nor anything they get powered when you exit the shop so it's more or less the same principle of operation to retrieve the results the sanitary pad has already analyzed and today what we have is a very promising result on laboratory conditions so our biochemical sensor works perfectly in the lab. And what we're working on today is validating this in the clinic. That is amazing. So that's going to detect your biomarker and send this signal if it's there. 
And it's, yeah, it's really, really soft. No different, I wouldn't say, than, than any normal sanitary towel. It was amazing to get my hands on something that could one day help protect developing brains by preventing preterm labour, setting the stage for what's to come. Because the thing is, in terms of brain development, once the baby is born, it's only the beginning of the story, as Kristen is now only too aware. So this is little baby boy. He has no name yet. Um, he's nine days old, so he was born at 41 weeks and two days. Um, but he's very calm, very calm baby, which is quite nice. He's quite a big boy. He came out at eight pounds, 14 ounces. And he's got lots of blonde hair and really, really chubby cheeks. Very happy little squishy guy, I guess. <laughs> and none of his clothes fit. He's got really big feet. It's really strange because I've seen pictures of him since he was six weeks old as a tiny little, you know, the size of a chia seed or something. And now to have a full baby is just crazy to me. And I don't know, I'm trying to figure out if his sort of his movements in the womb were really sort of quite slow and he's sort of the same now. He's still really calm. And I think that maybe that's a reflection on his personality. And I I wonder if that's going to change, if he'll sort of wake up and be really active or if he'll just sort of be a calm guy his whole life. We've sort of been thinking about that. So I don't know. I can see he's changed already in a week from when he's been born. So it's, it's really exciting to see these tiny little changes happen and I'm excited to see what he's going to be like. From honing the senses, learning to walk and talk, play and socialise, to later changes like the surging hormones of puberty or even parenthood, there's a lot of brain development still to come for any newborn. And so that's what we'll be looking at in this season of How We're Wired, how the brain works from before birth to after death. Join us in two weeks' time for a celebration of sound and synapses, from how we hear to why musical vibrations feel so good. But right now, our first Focus episode is already available, where we're exploring the neuroscience of language and how babies learn to talk. I'm Anna Machen, and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertorelli Foundation. Subscribe or follow now for free so you never miss an episode.